This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The immediate future of British politics suddenly changed last Thursday lunchtime. GDP growth in the UK has slowed and the economy is now forecast to enter recession later this year. As the UK faces five quarters of recession, a year of double-digit inflation and impossible fuel prices, it doesn't feel like many of our politicians understand the scale of a mounting social emergency. One of our guests today thinks he has at least part of the answer. He'd say that people should join a trade union and people in positions of power and influence should listen to union members, unlike this fella. Are you or are you not a Marxist? Because if you are a Marxist, then you're into revolution and into bringing down capitalism. So, are you or aren't you? Richard, you do come up with the most remarkable twaddle sometimes. Unlike me, I hasten to add. Right, some big questions in the midst of all this centre on the Labour Party. What's it for? Who does it represent? And where is it going? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the General Secretary of the RMT Union, Mick Lynch, and Miata Farnbuller from the New Economics Foundation. Hello to you both. Hi. 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 Right, Mick, thank you for coming on. We've been trying to get you for a while. It's lovely you're here. Next week, there are going to be more train strikes. There are two RMT strikes on Thursday the 18th and Saturday the 20th of uh, August, and there's an ASLEF strike scheduled for Saturday the 13th of August. Just tell us, fairly obvious question really, why we're, why we're here again, why we're still here. And there's an RMT strike on London Underground on the 19th. Okay. So that one's off the That's list. Good. That's on my list. So, yeah, the issues have been stated broadly. We've got a, a situation where Grant Shapps, the DFT, have cut £4 billion off the railway, £2 billion off London Underground and £2 billion off the main line, National Rail. And that means major job cuts, perhaps five or 6,000 uh, redundancies coming off Network Rail and the train operators. They want to rip up our terms and conditions, which are very important to our members. So that means more unsocial hours, completely change their working practices, like a recontracting. And in fact, that's what they're offering, the new a sort of fire and rehire. And we haven't had a pay deal in most cases for two or three years. So all of that's boiled up into a situation that we can't be passive in the face of such aggression. And our members have voted very, very strongly to stand up to that. We want a deal on the modernisation agenda, as they put it, and we're prepared to negotiate that. We want job security, no compulsory redundancies, and we want a pay deal that recognises the rampant inflation that we're all experiencing and addresses our members' need for a decent living. And remind me of the pay deal you're after relative to the current rate of inflation. 
Well, I can't uh, negotiate with you, John, because you haven't got the power, power to that settle with me. That would be a waste of both our time. But, for instance, the network rail one, if we'd settled on the network rail anniversary, the inflation then was 7.1. Eight months have gone since that deal, but we didn't get a deal last year. And there's a range of uh, different deals in the train operators, which are around the eight, eight and a half, nine mark uh, of inflation at that time. That's the retail price index, which we think is the real rate of inflation. Yeah, tell me about your view, really, of the reach of this. I was looking at um, projections for people who are going to be in fuel poverty. Fuel poverty is defined as paying more than 10% of your net income on fuel bills. And the projections, these are by academics at the University of York, are astonishing. They say that about 54% of UK households by January next year are going to be in fuel poverty. And in Northern Ireland, for example, it's going to be as high as 70%. I mean, this is unprecedented stuff. It absolutely is. I mean, the scale is phenomenal. Um, It's not just a squeeze on, you know, families that have been hammered, quite frankly, for well over a decade um, that are absolutely the sharp end of this. It is climbing up the income scale. And I think that's the thing that it feels like our politicians haven't, grasped you know this isn't just a minority issue it's a huge majoritarian issue it's not the sort of price increases that people can just absorb and suck it up it is absolutely extraordinary so even if you are on a modest income and you're doing okay you will not be able to absorb this and that is the thing that i think in the end is going to force our politics but we will go on to that in some detail um, in a moment today we will be talking uh, about the bigger picture around the rail strikes and the position of the railways, um, the cost of living crisis that we're seeing, what it means for the economy. We will go on to talk about the trade unions, the role they're going to play in the immediate future and what might get in their way. And finally, we will talk about the Labour Party, what it's going to do to help people at the rough end of questions about pay, living standards and work. The clue used to be in that party's name, arguably, the Labour Party. Uh, we will talk about that. So, first of all... Let's talk about the so-called cost of living crisis, which, let's be honest, I mean, that's sort of a, a misnomer now, isn't it? It's a social emergency. Um, the government is barely there yet. The government, it seems to me, barely exists at the moment. And the central question is what we're going to do as this this emergency vividly comes into view. Mick, just tell us a bit about the about the position of your members and their stories and the, and the sense you get, really, of the cost of living crisis as a very real thing in your members' lives. Well, there's a lot of talk about train drivers. Uh, the media is obsessed by them. Yeah, but you'd think they were millionaires. Yeah, the vast majority of people on the railway are not train drivers. And there are some very low-paid people. They're subcontractors. A lot of our people, cleaners and catering staff, are on some of them on minimum wage and living wage, and some of them are on a twenty-four, twenty-five thousand uh, pounds sort of salary. They do get good conditions compared to some people, but they're not earning bucks, and they are struggling. They've got families. They've got commitments. People living in big cities generally, uh, working on the railway, cannot afford to live. And they're saying we must have an increase. And the best way to address the cost of living crisis is through the pay packet. Not by handouts, as Liv Trust would say, not by occasional uh, bits of windfall, because they're temporary. They need a permanent increase in salaries and wages so that it's there this year and next year. And that means some of the people who, who make money in this society have got to give some of it up. You cannot have redistribution without some of the rich giving some of that money back through progressive tax or impairment on profits or just not declaring as much profit. Pay more wages to your staff and you won't have as much profit. That's quite simple. Everyone understands it. But they're determined in the modern mode of British capitalism to strip out everything Every bit of term and condition, every bit of holiday pay, every bit of pension, every bit of sick pay, everything that's not on the hourly rate 
is going to be stripped out. And I bet you there are people in this building today working on exactly those terms and conditions through a subcontractor and through a supplier. And that's what's wrong with British capitalism. Nobody's working for the man. Somebody's, everybody's working for another man or another woman through subcontracting. And we do need a bit of trade union pressure, but also a bit of a sense of duty from the companies. That might sound very old-fashioned. You want some capitalism with a social conscience. I do, and they've got to be forced to do it. And if you don't do it, you should be taxed really heavily. I was going to ask you, Miata, about, about the right response to what we're faced with. Now, obviously, that falls two ways, because this is a systemic crisis, so we can talk about big, enduring measures to sort of change the balance of power and to redistribute wealth and income. That's one thing. But then also, there's a set of questions about the immediate response. So let's let's talk about the immediate response first, and I'm keen as well to, to, to get into this question of how you sort of fundamentally change the economy. Gordon Brown at the weekend made the case for an emergency budget um, and, and very vividly talked about the gravity of what we're faced with. If there was an emergency budget, ho-ho, um, what would be in it from your perspective, ideally? Yeah, and look, for me, I think you've got to do both. You've got to do the short term and you've got to do structural shift. So short term Short first. term. So for me, in the end, you've got to get money into people's pockets. Um, the sorts of um, cost of living increases, and it's energy, yes, but it's also the cost of food, the cost of a whole load of consume, um, consumer goods, which people are just struggling to absorb. So I think the government should have a much tougher windfall tax because at the moment we are taking the bare minimum in terms of windfall gains. And then, by the way, we're then giving a whole load of fossil fuel companies uh, a tax rebate for investment they were going to do anyway. So tough windfall tax that could probably get you three times, four times the amount that the government's getting. You use part of that in order to provide people with short term support now so that they can get through this winter and then the and then the the months afterwards. And does that mean because at the moment they've said there's going to be a universal payment to everybody paid in stages I think of four hundred pounds, and then for people on means tested benefits it, it is is I mean this is I think it's being paid or starting to be paid already six hundred fifty pounds. You presumably would, would increase that very sizably both Absolute, amounts of money. Absolutely, and there are two parts of this. So for me, you need a massive boost to benefits uh, targeted at those that looks to compensate them for the fact that their incomes have been eroded over a decade of austerity. And that's why this is so painful and precarious for them. On top of that, I think we do need a wider, more expansive measure that right. tries to target that 60% of people who are just going to struggle. So I think... And you, that's that's a lot of mixed members. Not all of exactly. mixed members, but you're, you're, you're talking there about people exactly. in work, yep. people who, don't, in work who don't need benefits modest, yep. but are still feeling the pinch. Absolutely. And what happens there? Uh, well, so, you know, at the moment they're getting £400 through their bills, which I just don't think, I mean, it barely cuts the sides when <laughs> bills are likely to go up to th uh, 3500 in October. And we do it as a direct transfer. And by the way, we do it through the social security system because that's what it's there to do. I think the second thing you need to do is that you've got to tackle the energy market. Yes, a lot of this is driven by Ukraine and external factors, but that market is rigged and it's broken. It has been for a really long time. And, you know, Ofgem is not doing its job of protecting consumers. It's more focused on protecting the market and so for me this is the moment in which we disrupt it firstly create a public sector operator that is like an operative last resort so we're not handing customers to the big six and consolidating their market power you then combine that with i would say creating cooperative energy um, providers to flood the market with renewables cheaper and you decouple the price of renewables from the price of gas so if you were to do that and by the way your windfall tax probably raises enough to be able to pay for some of that that's some short-term measures, that's fixing the energy crunch. And then you get to the long-term reform, which, by the way, I agree, it has to be pay. Talking of which, uh, let's hear a bit more from Andrew Bailey, the Governor of the Bank of England. This is what he said um, about 
wages and, as he sees it, their potential inf- effect on inflation, among other things? If everybody tries to beat inflation, and, and that's in both price setting and wage setting... No, but what about matching it? Never mind beating it. What about well, matching it? Why, say, why is that inflationary? Well, it never comes down. That's the, that's the, you know, the issue in many ways. If everybody tries to beat it, it doesn't come down, it gets worse. That's the problem. That was Andrew Bailey talking to the BBC's Justin Webb. Now, Mick, as you came in here, you said you had just finalised a deal with Stagecoach East Midlands, the bus operator, for an 11% rise. So you've just done exactly what Andrew Bailey said will lead us to rack and ruin, right? Tell me why he's wrong. He's wrong because people at the bottom end of the pay scale cannot be responsible for price rises. What's responsible for price rises is profit-taking. The, the rich in this country have never been richer, in my, in my opinion. We've got more billionaires than we know what to do with. So what is really needed is a pay rise. And we, one of the things we could do is change the minimum wage. We could have a real living wage, which is universal. The, live, the real living wage we've got at the moment is put together by religious groups and uh, policy advisors and is not enforceable. So we need a national minimum earnings level that everybody should receive as a minimum. And if they're on that, they should get some discounts directly off the utility providers. There's no harm in having a a low-paid workers' energy tariff. That would be one of the most progressive taxes you can have. Wages are not pushing up prices. Wages are trying to catch up with prices. He would say... It's the other way round. He would say they're not causing price rises yet, but I suppose he would say if you got across-the-board pay rises then inevitably that would push up prices because well, employers would well, have to charge should their say, customers perhaps more. Perhaps he should say we should all go on the minimum wage, everybody, and that would cure inflation tomorrow. That would be another way of doing it, so there were no rich. And the key thing is, if you look at what's happening to wages, it's not true. The evidence does not bear the fact that there is a wage price inflation. So between uh, you know, the, the numbers, the three months up to May, uh, you know, wages, if you exclude bonuses, were down 2.8%. That's even though inflation's already here. So, uh, like, I understand theoretically the argument that somehow this creates a spiral, but the truth is that's not happening. The, the other danger is if, if people cannot afford to live, they are just going to do... They're going to stop spending. So we're on the da- in danger of a cliff-edge recession. We won't drift into the recession. People will just stay at home, try and pay their electricity bill, and stop spending. That's a much overlooked part of this, isn't it? In the sense that there are large swathes of the economy that depend on discretionary spending that have just had a hell of a time through the pandemic. And now, via the energy price shock, you suck even more demand out of the economy. So this is the bit that I find really bizarre because there are two... What, that it's overlooked to the extent that it is? Yeah, because there are two things that, in the end, the Bank of England and the government need to weigh up. One is inflation, and granted, the kind of primary focus of the Bank of England is inflation, but the other is the recession and what's happening to the economy. And if I have to think about the levers that, say, the bank has and what's happening to the economy, we know that if you increase interest rates given that much of the inflation is imported. By that, I mean it's driven by external factors, the energy prices, uh, supply chain disruptions out there. There's very little they can actually do about that. But actually, by increasing interest rates, you absolutely hit people in their pocket at the wrong time. But you increase the risk of recession. One thing that is making Britain more vulnerable to this crisis, it seems to lots of people, me included, is Brexit. It's been said that leaving the EU um, accounts for a couple of percentage points of the UK's inflation rate. Our economy is in a fragile state in terms of growth prospects and our trade position, which obviously have consequences for the future of the public finances. Seeing as you're here, Mick, your union supported Brexit, so I assume you supported Brexit as well. Is that fair to say? Well, we supported leaving the European Union because of the policies of the EU. For instance, 
the it's now policy under the Maastricht Treaty and the fourth railway package that you must privatise your railway network. And France and Germany and Italy and Spain are in the middle of doing that now, parceling out all of their train networks to private operators. And that's true under Maastricht of all public services. So eventually there will be a market in healthcare and all that stuff in the constitution. And now, therefore, irrespective of the hardship we're currently enduring, it was well, worth it. I didn't vote for hardship and I never would do. But what I voted for, you are, I was asked the question by a group of politicians, do you agree with staying in the European Union under its constitution? How you leave it, we weren't consulted on, famously. So there are loads, loads of ways to leave it. There's loads of ways to leave any any relationship. You can kick over all the chairs. There are ways to leave your lover. And, yeah, exactly. Saying. And at my other view, in general, the Corbyn Manifesto would be illegal in the European Union, in our opinion. Giving up your fiscal policy to uh, the central bank and to Frankfurt and Brussels is not a good idea if you want progressive politics. So I don't think you'll get progressive politics from the European Union in the future. No, but, but you'll get the outside remnants of it, a- you get penury and a, and a pretty grim economic future and 4% shaved off productivity and GDP and all well, of that. That's a lot of babies to throw out with the bathroom, well, isn't it? You know, I'm a Republican and uh, my family was always on the side of Ireland leaving the United Kingdom and they had to put up with what they got. Britain voted for Brexit because they were never a happy partner. I think if we had the EEC, we would still be in it. We could get a government tomorrow in Britain with a progressive agenda, which would be more free to do the things that I want than they would be inside the European Union. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I think the irony for me is many of the things that you know Mick, um, you know, rightly points that was wrong with the European project. Britain was the, the key protagonist of, you know, the privatisation mm. agenda. Mm. We were the key protagonist of. I would have stayed to fight to change the European Union, but we haven't, and we've left. And there's a route in which we could have left and made it better. And I think we've chosen the worst possible route and we have the worst possible set of politicians to try to do this in a way that makes the country better and not worse. And that, for me, is the kind of key focus. How do you do this thing? Given that we've left, how do we make it better for the country? Okay, right. A consensus is reachieved. We will move on and talk about trade unions. This summer... We are seeing clearly a wave of strike action. Workers from all parts of the economy, including the railways, airlines and postal service, have balloted their members on strike action. Some of this stuff, as Mika said, is about conditions, but central to it all is the question of pay, keeping pace with the soaring cost of living. Mickey's here. You've been pretty central to the way this has played out, certainly on the media of late. How surprised were you with your sort of sudden prominence and how comfortable are you? With, are you with it? You're a sort of summer sensation. I wasn't. I didn't expect that to happen to see a trade union general secretary. Yeah, well, it's a bit weird position. for me, a, a man in my condition, and your listeners can't see what what I'm like. But I think I'm you're being sure, hard on yourself. Mate. I'm sure they've seen. It. Yeah, it's. It, we've ridden a sort of wave. Um, timing is what it's all about, I suppose. It, you know, it, our dispute coincides with a lot of things going on in societies, as we've just talked about. And I'm on top of that at this time. I'm. I'm very aware that. I could tumble off that little pedestal or whatever it is, surfboard, um, if I don't get a deal. I've got to get a deal, and that's my job, to get a deal for my people that pay my wages. And how's that, and looking? How's that looking at the minute? Well, we know there's a deal there. It's down to Shaps and the DFT to allow that deal to, to flower and to, to come to fruition, if that's not a terrible analogy. Two things going on at once. That's but, all right. They're both um, sort of botanical. Yeah. Right. Um, so there is a deal to be done. It's just a, there's timing now has gone against us with the Tory leadership campaign nobody likes the rmt in the tory world i uh, don't blame them in some ways because we're their biggest enemy so we'll get a deal eventually if the railway managers and ourselves could, can be allowed to get on with it but as far as my profile is concerned 
I would be far happier if the Labour front bench was riding this wave, identifying with everybody. But the thing I think that Mick and the other union leaders have done so well is that it isn't just about the dispute in your sector, which is obviously your primary focus, but you've managed to connect to a bigger story in the country. And actually, you know, the, the, I think the government's judgment was always, oh, we can demonise the role strike. We can demonise the strikers. We can turn the public against them. But because you were talking for the public, because in the end, you know, the realities of your members is the realities across the country. People are struggling. Their wages have been held back. And they're looking at the system and saying, this feels rigged. It doesn't feel right. That now, has resonated. And for me, that is what's been so that, powerful that sort of spectacle of this resonating in a way that a lot of people were not expecting to my mind was played out in in some of your most celebrated media encounters where really you're talking to people whose understanding of the trade unions and these very big questions about the state of the economy and so on seem to be rooted in the world of sort of 30 or 40 years ago and you're saying well no we're not there well, we're not there anymore please stop asking me questions like that and it's sort of hilarious but grim at the same time. I'm sorry to play this again. You probably find this unbearable. But here's Kay Burley from Sky News. Well, I just wondered what else it might involve because I very well remember uh, the picket well, lines where, of the 1980s, where are you going with your... Mr Lynch. I'm asking you which what your members you would about? do, Mr which, Lynch. Which picket lines are you talking uh, the about? Minor the minor strikes. Minor strikes. Yeah. What does it look like, the minor strikes? <laughs> What no, are it you doesn't, Mr. Lynch, and I'm just asking. I'm just to clarify. She's just gone off into I'm the world of the surreal. Mr. Lynch, she kept yeah. saying. Well, yeah. There is something there, isn't there? I think there's about something. About this completely misplaced view that we're still in the world that we were in when I'm 52 now. That she's talking about the world when I was 14. Yeah, and this, I hate this idea about working class people that somehow I'm a baron and my members just do what I tell them because I wake up wanting to cause disruption. It's far more vigorous, the democracy in the trade union movement, and any trade union leader will tell you that. We get kicked by our members very firmly in a friendly way if we don't do what they want to do. And our members are pushing this really hard. And you can see it on the picket lines. They're very bright and intelligent working class people who can articulate this issue as well as I can in most cases. And that's what we try to do. And I think journalism has taken a bit of a kick in, in this, broadcast journalism in particular. Uh, because they don't really know what they're talking about. They've just run these, these tri proper, uh, uh, repeated lines about barons and the 70s and all this. Most people weren't... I was alive then. I was at work uh, from 78 onwards. It wasn't like that then either. We did go to work most days of the week, you know. Most days of the week we were being productive. Let's talk about the, the position of, of trade unions in 2022. Um, as I just said a moment ago, you seem mostly to get asked questions by people who either don't understand trade unions or are hostile to them. Um, some of what I'm about to say will hopefully strike a slightly different tone. Um, notwithstanding the fact that the way this summer has played out and support for the rail strikes has been higher, it seems, than a lot of people have expected, and people asking you the sorts of questions that Kay Burley did have been wrong-footed, um, it remains the case that the proportion of, of UK workers who are trade union members is about 23%. Um, I think it's the government statistics say anyway that that's the lowest union membership rate on record among UK workers. But I wonder whether the trade unions decline or the fact that, that very often the trade unions seem to be stuck in this position might say something about the big established trade unions in particular and the need to do things differently. So you've said in your interviews a lot, I've heard you say this, we've been too passive, right? And I wonder what you mean by that. 
Well, we've been too passive in industrial relations terms. There hasn't been enough disputes, frankly, and we haven't. Some of the unions haven't exercised their power. They've been too cosy, and some of them have been waiting too long to by putting policy papers forward by pleading with people to do them a favour, and these favours aren't getting done. So that means people are getting paid worse and worse wages every every year, and their conditions are being stripped out. We've got to be a bit insurgent. We've got to go back to the communities and start from the bottom. On the estates, with the low-paid, with the non-paid and the unorganised and the disorganised. Because we've got to go back really into the communities where there isn't work even, or where the work is very fractured, and find a way to say, we are the unions, here's our flag, here's our centre, running campaigns along with uh, tenants' associations, renters' associations, environmental groups... And not necessarily saying in the first instance we're here to organise your workplace. No, no. We're here to help you organise in general, where we've got to find a way for workers, ordinary men and women around this country, young people and new activists who are not necessarily young, people in their 40s and 50s in this country, haven't been in organisations, haven't been in the scouts, haven't been in the church, haven't been in the mosque. All these places where you would get organisation, working class uh, credentials of being a committee member and all that stuff that is actually essential and makes your life better in the long term. At the moment, me I mean, you know, I write about and cover trade unions quite a bit by the standards of, of journalism. And when I write about disputes at the sort of cutting edge, precarious end of the economy, I tend not to be writing about the big unions. I'm writing about these little unions, like the IWGB is a good example, who organise bike couriers and delivery drivers and people like that. And the big unions don't seem to be there. No, so I don't think they have been, but I completely agree with Mick that there is a massive opportunity. And actually, the agenda that I found most exciting that I've heard coming up, the union movement, is exactly that, going back to organising. Because in the end, my view is that the kind of scale of change that we need to achieve... We won't do it until people mobilise and make that change happen because our politics is really broken. And there's huge mobilisation and organising capacity of the unions to go in there and actually make people's causes their causes. But you'd have to change, would you not, the basis on which trade unions work? Because there's some of them, most of them arguably, are still stuck in the old-fashioned world whereby you organise organize via the workplace and there's a rep and a convener in the workplace. Now, in a world in which people hold down two or three jobs at once or in the course of, of a year or two might have five or six different jobs, that model of organisation doesn't work anymore. Does you it? have to keep doing a bit of that. And in many workplaces, there is an in-house workforce like the NHS, doctors, nurses, clinicians, and there is an outsource workforce the caterers cleaners uh, and other suppliers they've got to mentor the others and often they are people from migrant background uh, certainly in the big cities that's not true all over the country so interestingly our next campaign in the rmt which we want to get the big general unions on board is about cleaners and ancillary workers that in work poverty and lack of dignity and respect and i tell you most black workers in london where i meet uh, in the low-paid sector, they say it's not only wages. I want some dignity off these people because they treat me like a piece of dirt all of the time. So we've had that. We've had really bad situations where we've organised a lot of African workers and the companies deliberately brought in Eastern European workers next, made all those Eastern European, the foremen and the su supervisors, and put a wedge between us. We've got to get across all of that stuff as well, which is really old-fashioned stuff that they used to do to... English and Irish workers, Catholics and Protestants in other eras. We've got to get round all that stuff. Um, there is an issue, isn't there, Mick, and forgive me saying this, about the, the face the, the big unions 
present to the public, which in the context of the fact that the precarious workers you're talking about very often are women and people of colour, that the, the public face the unions present really is still far too white and male, isn't it? Yeah, we struggle with that, and we struggle with that in my union. I mean, look at me and look at my predecessors and most of the people in the positions of influence. We are changing. We've got women organisers and, and uh, black people on our executive now, but it's very slow. But we don't... Too we, slow. We don't recruit the people in the workplace. So train drivers are invariably white. Right. Uh, you know, it's very difficult for us to change that. The employment practices haven't changed. Yeah, who's doing it right on that score and the other score that we talked about, about organising more precarious workers? Where do you see signs of inspiration? I think some of the really new insurgent unions are doing really well. Um, and, you know, they're pro providing a bit of a challenge. I mean, we did some work where we were um, working with some of them and the big unions, and it was it was a struggle to get them round the table together. Um, but actually, you know, to be fair to the likes of RMT, CWU, I think they've recognised that there is an alliance to be built. They've also recognised that actually there are models of organising that they can adopt from some of these small insurgent unions. So, I mean, I think that has to be the direction um, because I think the country needs the trade union movement more than it has ever needed the trade union movement. Right. On that note, we will pause momentarily and then we will come back uh, and talk about the cost of living crisis um, and the response of the Labour Party, the party founded, as was famously said, from the bowels of the trade union movement. By my union. There you go. The AS predecessor, ASRS, and we're not affiliated. You come full circle. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now, thanks for sticking with us. We are now going to talk about the current Labour Party and its leadership uh, and its relationship to Labour with a small L, workers. We are talking, um, among other things, obviously, about Keir Starmer. And some of what we're going to be discussing here, the tensions sort of swirling around Keir Starmer, have been crystallised um, in this subject, this controversy about Labour shadow ministers appearing on picket lines. This is what Keir Starmer had to say recently about that. The Labour Party in opposition needs to be the Labour Party in power, uh, and a government doesn't go on picket lines. A government tries to resolve disputes. Mick, when was the last time you... I know the RMT isn't an affiliated union to the Labour Party any, anymore, but nonetheless, this strikes me as a sort of relevant question. When was the last time you spoke to Keir Starmer? When did you last see your father? During the P&O uh, <laughs> scandal, Keir Starmer was very good. and I always Remind give... us of the P&O scandal? So the P&O scandal is where they sacked 800 British seafarers, or British-based seafarers, in order to get agency workers largely 
from overseas to get rid of terms and conditions, fire and rehire. Okay. Now, he was fairly decent on that. And the front bench, Louise Haig and Angela Rayner, they got P&O workers up to Parliament. We met all the right people and they did as much as they could do as an opposition. Unfortunately, the government didn't. They didn't lift a finger in the end. Okay. So he was okay on that. I've got to give him praise for that. Okay. And now? Well, what I think he's got to do now is ride the wave of this uh, uprising of, of sentiment, at least, and show that he is in step with where ordinary people are, working people, even middle class people, where they are, that he understands what they're going through and is going to put up a fierce opposition and put an alternative programme. So if he puts a five point charter, like most people do, pledge card, whatever you want to call it, about the cost of living crisis, something that he's going to do short term, medium term and long term, like the long term one is council housing, for God's sake. National Care Service. Just say you're going to have a National Care Service. Who cares how it's funded? I don't care. We'll find the funding at one stage, but you've got to say you're going to have one. You've got to say we're going to build 100,000 municipally owned council houses. If he says that, at at least. least, if he says that, you'll hear a cheer all over Britain saying, oh, we're going to solve the housing market crisis by having an alternative to the market. Say all of this stuff. And people will push you into Parliament on a, on the crest of a wave. I can't believe he's missing this. It's like a, a, a putt on the lip of the hole at St Andrews. It's like an open goal where it's 40 foot wide at the FA Cup final. And he can't see it. I just can't believe he's not able to connect with us. Yeah, we're, any of we're us critical of Keir Starmer most weeks on this podcast and I always feel guilty about it. Is there any case to be made here about the need for necessary caution and stuff? Or would you do you 100% agree with what Mix just said? So I think, I mean, so the Labour Party says it's going to start setting out its stall over the course of the summer and autumn. So it let's does see. come conference season. Exactly, so let's see. But, you know, I do think, for me, that there is a massive opportunity. Because in the end, at the heart of this cost of living crisis is a Tory failure on living standards. That has to be the central attack. You know, when when living standards haven't shifted for 15 years, the majority of which is under a government, that's the thing you hammer them on. And then you then provide an alternative. So I agree there is a prospectus out there that goes to a living wage that, you know, generally reflects the true, the true cost of living, which, by the way, our real living wage doesn't at the moment. You do that and then you tell a story about how you re-gear the economy and I think my frustration is all the pieces are there. You know, many of us that are trying to influence policy are throwing these ideas out. It's not like our side, and by that I mean the progressive side, doesn't have a wealth of ideas about how we get the economy to work for people. They have to grasp it. And I think this autumn is their last window because we're then in election territory and you need to start selling your offer now for it to cut through with the but public. But in that context, the presence or otherwise of shadow ministers on picket lines is a sort of distraction. Well, it's look, a canard. Look, really, I don't right? expect him to be there picketing every day. He's been on picket lines. He just won't come on our one for some reason. Uh, so he can do what he likes, but you shouldn't sack people just because they turn up at their local picket okay. line. Lisa but that's a it. tiny part of what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, it's it? irrelevant. I want him to identify with the needs of the day, which is what working class people are dying out for they, I think most working class people want him to be successful. I want him to win the election. I'm not affiliated. He's not my favourite. I don't believe the Labour Party is going to succeed by getting your favourite lefty to be the leader. I'm just not that. I'm a pragmatist. And um, 2019 so, arguably proves that. Uh, arguably. So I like <laughs> I like I like Corbyn. 
I like what he stood for, but he didn't win. Right. Let's do something else. Right. Let's reboot. But don't do what they're doing now, which is nothing. And I think the problem with the sort of picket line argument was that it made it about the picket line and sacking an MP and yeah. what is Labour for rather than wages. There was a story yeah. that they could have told about a government that has, you know, suppressed late wages, has driven an economy that works for the, 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 you know, the few, not the many. That's where they should have been. That should have been the intervention. And then you combine it with cuts that meant that we don't have the public services and the rail services when Germany's providing 9% subsidy to, rail, to the railways and the public sector. So that there, was, there was an intervention that would have elevated the debate for them. And unfortunately, it became about what's the Labour Party for, which is a bit unfortunate. See, what, every bit of news, though, John, go on. is about uh, funds and about retooling what we're doing. So last week, there was a story about 60,000 clinical NHS vacancies. I can't remember what they said about that, the Labour Party. What he should have said was, they're not being paid enough, it's too stressful, we need a massive training programme to get working-class people into clinical jobs, for instance. You can say, I'm going to get loads of people, men and women off the council estates, trained as nurses, I'm going to reboot nurse training. Tons of ideas. Everyone I meet, people my age, you know, even my missus, is a nurse wants to reboot the way do, they do nursing. They don't seem to have any imagination about any of the issues in front of us that would be really appealing how to get kids into proper apprenticeships rather than this nonsense we've got now. Have a high-wage economy. He could be saying so much now without costing. The thing is, there is. I think there's a hankering for change in the country. I think there has been for a long while. I think actually Brexit was, you know, came down to desire for change. No, I would agree with that. Yep. And I think that there is a moment where, you know, the Labour Party, progressive parties can actually set out a stall by how they shift the economy. And I think Keir, because he has, you know, he spent the first couple of years trying to build his credibility, seeming like he was sensible, seeming like he, you know, was thoughtful. And I think he's won all of that. So he he could actually sell radical change better than Corbyn would have been able to sell radical change. So I think there's a space for him and I just hope he will step into it. Okay, to finish, um, it's easy and inevitable to look to what's going to happen in the autumn and is already happening, has been happening through this year, if not before then, and feel very, very bleak, right? I just wonder, respectively with each of you, what's your sort of feeling of the balance between optimism and pessimism here? Well, so I, I'm, I'm a perennial optimist, but I feel optimistic because, you know, if I think back at 2008, I, I thought surely this is the point that something gives. People have had enough. And then, you know, we had Brexit and the shambles around Brexit um, and the sort of failure to sort of deliver an offer. And I was like, surely this is people have had enough. And it kind of felt like actually there was quite a lot of resilience. And I actually think we're at the point where people have had enough. Um, and I think in the end, our politics needs to be shaken up in a massive way if we are going to drive big systemic change. And that has that clamour has to come from the public because in the end, our politics doesn't shift unless the public demands something better. And I feel like we are now at the moment, because it is so grim and so pervasive, that people are going to say enough is enough, which I think is mm. a campaign. Uh, yeah, yeah. so this is being launched what, uh, today, as, today, we, yeah. today we're, as we we're, speak. It's we're Monday. trying to get this enough is enough campaign Tell off. Tell us about enough is well, enough. Well, it's going to be a trade union campaign it's going to be community groups it's going to be all sorts of groups and we're hoping more people uh, will come in so it's a real pay rise slash the energy bills which we talked about end food poverty which has got to happen everybody will believe in that decent homes for all which is the council house thing and we've got to have proper progressive tax why i'm optimistic john is that we've been allowed to get those words and those terms back into the debate and the word redistribution is now being googled 
which we haven't been allowed to say for Is that a fact? decades. Yeah, redistribution. I keep saying it in every... I'll say it another three times, redistribution. Uh, in this interview, we've been able to get that out there and people go, what is that? That means that we're going to have a fairer society. I also think that this government that we've got will collapse because I think if they, when they elect trust, I think we're going to be faced with an extreme right government. I don't know where else you can go. They're going to try and ban trade unions. We've got to try and do something about that. We've got to get the art of protest going. We've got to get people on the streets in the proper way, for those that are going to criticise me. Proper mass demonstrations around the country uh, doing the stuff that is a real resistance to this horrible politics that we've got. And, I, you know, I'm in the world of ideas. And I think the thing that does give me hope is I think they're out of ideas. I think if you think about their solutions to the cost of living crisis, tax cuts that will benefit, you know, 80% of the benefits will, you know, go to the top 50%. It's out of sync with the country, which means we can provide an alternative that I think will resonate. And if this is the pivot point for our, if you like, our consensus on how we should run the economy, then that does give me hope. That's good. We haven't ended bleakly. Redistribution, 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 as Tony Blair may want to put it, although he didn't. Thanks for listening. Thank you uh, most of all to Mick and Miata for joining us today. Thank you both. Thank Thanks you. for having me. I hope everyone out there enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts and even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. I'm off next week, but you will get a chance to hear my top four or five book recommendations, reads that have helped me through the last year and may help you too, I dare say. Gabby Hinsliff will be hosting uh, the podcast the week after and I'll be back at the beginning of September. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.